Good morning, everyone. Thank you for that wonderful opening. The words of those songs certainly echo in the two chapters that we're going to look at today. And that's chapter 63 and 64 in the book of Isaiah. Uh, I thought before we start, uh, I would just make an announcement that for those who are leaders in kids clubs um, on Tuesday, that the straight jackets will be arriving on Monday. So uh, I, I see some satisfaction there. That's good. Sixty-three, verses one to six. Who is this who comes from Eden, Edom, who dyed garments from Borzra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. And I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Powerful words, words that are intimidating in a way. But I want you to think of this message this morning a little bit differently than maybe any message you've thought of before. We've talked about so many things in the book of Isaiah, it's sort of like the Revelation 101 uh, of the Old Testament because it does mirror a lot of the things that are in the book of Revelation and it is prophecy, of course. Um, But it's more than that. Have you ever thought of the Bible as being the diary of God? Because it is. You know, every word is God breathed. Every directive from him is truth. Every word is approved by the creator, our Lord, our God. We often tell you to look at the bigger picture rather than taking one verse or one word and expounding on that and getting all wound up in what that means. We tell you to look at the bigger picture. That's fine, but I'd also like you to look at the personal picture as it's presented through Isaiah. Because that personal relationship with the Heavenly Father is really no different than our relationship is with the Heavenly Father today. Yes, Isaiah was called by God to do these things, but so are you called to do things. And you need to adhere to those invites that he's giving to you, to those opportunities that he's giving to you. So I want you to look at this as a personal couple of chapters, as a personal message, okay? Now, we heard last week in chapter 62, the repeating story of grace uh, that was offered. And it's prevalent throughout the book of Isaiah. Uh, God alone is acknowledged as the only source of redemption and salvation in his time. It will be done in his time. Reading from verse 11 of chapter 62. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world. Say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, 
His reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. And this is the change that Steve talked about from Zion to Jerusalem. Now, you know, the people of Israel and Isaiah himself might have thought that that's the end of it. This is the prophecy. Israel is going to receive its redemption. The end has been reached. The glory of Zion is in sight. What more needs to be done? God's going to take care of all of that. God's grace will continue for all who receive it. Yet there's disappointment because there's going to be judgment. And as we read these first six verses, we see that. So the message here is that while redemption and forgiveness is available, a price has to be paid for our iniquity. Judgment must take place, and it will take place in God's time. And it begins with the judgment upon a longtime enemy of Israel, the Edomites. For a very long time, there had been recurring hostility between Israel and Edom. It began in the time of Esau and Jacob's youth. It broke further into bitterness uh, when Edom denied Israel the right of passage through its lands. And that can be found in the Old Testament in Numbers 20, 14 to 20. And I'll read a few of those verses just to give you a flavor for what's going on. Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that has befallen us. And he's speaking of his time spent in the time spent in Egypt by the Israelites. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through the fields or the vineyards, nor will we drink water from the wells. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right or to the left until after we have passed through your territory. Then Edom said to him, You shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with the sword. And further again in verse 20 he says, Then he said, You shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and a strong hand. This is the beginning of a long, long rivalry, hostility between the Edomites and the Israelites. And of course, Israel didn't just have the Edomites to contend with. Over the years, over the centuries, they had many others. In fact, later on, when Babylon had triumphed over Jerusalem, Edom urged that her walls should be leveled to the ground. In Psalm 137.7, it says, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. So there's not a lot of love between the Edomites and the Israelites. But you would wonder how that is part of the story here. But the picture changes. The picture changes greatly. Isaiah stands at the border of two countries looking south from the foothills of Judah across the sandy wasteland. In the distance he beholds a mighty warrior coming up from Edom. His garments are wet, not with his own blood, but with the blood of the Edomites. He will henceforth stand as a sentinel between Edom and Israel so that never more need Israel fear invasion nor oppression. That's pretty powerful. The Israelites must have felt very good about that. Finally, no more Egyptians, no more Edomites, no more Babylonians, no more whoever the next one might be. 
Because everybody was against Israel. Nobody seemed to like Israel except Israel. And God. Don't forget God. They were God's chosen people. So the situation here is one of judgment against the nation or against nations. In 67 or 63, 7 to 14, there is a change here. It talks about the compassion and the love of God. He reflects upon this compassion and the continuing mercies of the Lord. He realizes that indeed God is constantly fulfilling his covenant to the people. This has not been reciprocated to the Lord. And you know yourself that God asks you to do things and very often you fail. Very often you turn away or you ignore them. This is not what God wants. This is not what God asks. He didn't ask it of the Israelites and he's not asking it of you today. The mercy of the Lord is remembered in these seven verses. And let me read them to you with some emphasis on the words that reflect upon God's attitude. I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed upon us and the great goodness towards the house of Israel, towards his chosen people, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, not according to anything they did, but according to his grace in his time, in the way he wishes it to happen. According to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people. Children will not lie. Ha ha. So he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. I want to read that one again because I think that's a really, really powerful sentence. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He's the only one that can redeem them. He has compassion for each and every one of you. He had compassion for the Israelites. His love overcomes all. In his love and his pity, he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy. And he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old. Moses and his people saying, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea? Where is the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? Who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name. Who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness? Who was that? That they might not stumble. So even though you fail, as long as the attempt is made, he will pick you up. He will not let you fall. As a beast goes down into the valley and the spirit of the Lord causes him to rest, so you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. 
compassion, love, extravagance, pity, loving kindness, mercies, all the Lord. I said at the beginning, see this from God's point of view. I think most of us see God as a God of steel. A God who is up there, who is invincible, who does not get moved by small things. He is not moved by emotion. He is not moved by the power of others. And most of that is true. But I believe that God is probably the most emotional being around. He has much more emotion than we give him credit for. He loves you in everything you do. And even when you fail, and even when you do the most dastardly of deeds, He is willing to turn His head the other way. He is willing to allow you to be redeemed again. To come into His presence and receive salvation through His grace. That's pretty powerful. You know, my father, my father on earth, my biological father, was nothing like God. But he had certain traits that gave me a glimpse of what God is like. He always told me that no matter what you did, no matter how bad, how, how heinous the deed was, that you begin by coming home. Coming back to Him and allowing Him to help you through it. That was my father. Now, thank the Lord that I didn't have to do that very often. Uh, So I'm not sure what the consequences might have been had it been as heinous as that word seems to intimate. But I know that there are people like that and they don't know where to turn. And God is saying, turn here. And God is also saying that, you know, I'm taking care of the Edomites and I'm also going to take care of the Babylonians and the Egyptians and all the others that are giving you trouble because you are my people and I am not going to surrender them to you. But he also realizes that many of the Israelites are no different than the Edomites, than the Babylonians, than the Egyptians. And so he talks about a remnant of Israel because he knows that that judgment that has to be passed will have to be passed on many of the Israelites. And many of the Israelites who think that they have salvation that they are going to be redeemed, are going to be in for a surprise. In many ways, Isaiah is speaking the words of God. God is reflecting on how he got to this point with his people. The fact that he had lavished all these things upon them. And that time after time after time, 
as he says in these words, in the days of old, he remembers about Moses. He remembers about coming through Egypt, about parting the waters, about protecting his people and how they still turned away from him, how they still ignored him, how they still chose not to follow him in the way that he wanted them to do. How do you think that makes God feel? You call him your father, yet you disrespect him. You call him your father, yet you spend no time dealing with him, thinking about him, following his lead, following his direction. So in the end, how can you expect to get the reward that he has with him, as we read in verses earlier? All he wants is your respect. He wants you to honor and glorify him for what he has done. That doesn't sound like it's asking for an awful lot. As we start in chapter 63, verses 15 to 19, there's a prayer of penitence penitence here. They're asking themselves, what happened? Your compassion, your pity, why are you holding back? We had a good in those other times when we came through Egypt, you protected us. You protected us in many other issues. But now it's like you never knew us. You've ignored us. You've turned away from us. Verse 15 says, look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your strength? The yearning of your heart and your mercies towards me. Are they restrained? Doubtless, you are our father. Though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from everlasting is your name. O Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Return for your servant's sake the tribes of your inheritance. Your holy people have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We have become like those of old over whom you never ruled. Those who you never called by your name. Back in verse 17 it says, O Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart? From your fear. He didn't harden your heart. You hardened your heart. And it was because of your hardening of the heart that he had to get your attention. Had you not hardened your heart, had you done what he had wanted you to do, I suspect there would be no judgment on you. The only one that I know of that God will not pass judgment on is his son Jesus. And why is that? His heart was not hardened. His heart followed the Father, glorified the Father, honored the Father in every way possible. You know, it says right after harden your heart from your fear, return for your servant's sake the tribes of your inheritance. 
for your servant's sake. Why should he do anything for you? And yet he does. His glory is out there. His grace is out there for you every day. It's always there for you to have. All you have to do is accept it. That's what he's asking you to do. So as much as this chapter is about violence, about vengeance, about God's fury and anger towards those who are opposed to Israel and those even within Israel who have not followed his word, it's also ultimately about compassion and love. That it is never too late to come to the Lord. It is never too late to turn from your way of evil, from the iniquities that you continue to take upon yourself day in and day out. It's never too late. God is always there for you. As we go into chapter 64, there is a difference here. Chapter 64 acknowledges that God is in charge. And it acknowledges that you have to change, that we have to change, that I have to change. And it's also a plea from God. He wants you to change. He's not just saying these things through Isaiah to make you feel good. Or to make you feel that maybe you're a little bit better than others around you. Because you consider yourself a child of God. That's not good enough. You can say you're a child of God all you want. But if your heart does not follow that of God's, you're nowhere. If you do all these things without love, you're nowhere. And God's grace shows that. In verse 4 of chapter 64, it says, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you. There is an acknowledgement that there is only one God. That he is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing. That he has been there from the beginning. He just said it right here in the words. But the next line says, who acts for the one who waits for him. Who acts for the one who waits for him. So God will be there for you. If you are there for God. It's not exactly a fair. A fair trade. When you think of what God gives you. And all that you have to give God is certainly not fair. It certainly should be clear. It should be easy to do, but it's not. But that's what God wants. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You have you are indeed angry for we have sinned in these ways. We continue And we need to be saved. 
Isaiah says it right there. We need to be saved. We continue to sin. We have sinned. God is angry. God remembers us in our ways. But He will act for the one who waits for Him. For the one who does His bidding. Sounds an awful lot like His Son, Jesus Christ. Doesn't it? Does it sound like you? Could you put your name in there? Could Isaiah put his name in there? Could the Israelites of the day put their name in there? I'm not sure. And that's really something that only God would know. It goes on to say, but we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. There is no one who calls on your name who stirs himself up to take hold of you. You have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. So it's obvious that God knows what's going on. God knows that you've failed. God knows that, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, a lot of us are puffed up and full of words, but not full of a lot of actions. He knows that a lot of us are concerned about self, not concerned about others. He also knows that our righteousness is like filthy rags. In other words, it's going to rot over time. It's temporary because what we're seeking is seeking stuff for ourselves. The righteousness is righteousness for ourselves. It's not righteousness for the Lord. So as we get down into verse 8 and a little further in chapter 64, it talks about an acknowledgement. But now, O Lord, You are our Father. You are our Father. Think of what that responsibility means before you go any further. What do you do for your Father? You are obedient to Him. You are trusting in Him. You turn to Him for guidance. You follow His lead. And you try and honor Him and glorify Him for the foundation that He has set in you for your life. It goes on to say that we are the clay and you are our potter. And all we are the work of your hand. We are the work of His hand. So there's nothing you can do that changes your plight in life. Only God can shape you and mold you in the way that He wants you to go. And then you make a choice. Are you willing to follow that? Are you not willing to follow that? Here's some more of that penance that has been spoken. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look. We all are your people. Is that true? Are we all your people? I'm not sure. As a father, does he look upon you and say, I hear what you're saying, Wade, but I don't believe it. What I saw you doing yesterday, when I saw you take back that item, 
when I saw the words that you laid upon your brother or your sister. It says to me that you are not as holy as you think you are. So these two chapters have been very much about us having a God who works for them who want to work for him. That's what it's all about. It's a reciprocating agreement. It's a personal agreement. Even though he's talking about the people of Israel, he's talking about individuals here. It started out with a nation, but it has now turned to individuals. That individual could be Isaiah. It could be you in today's world. Because those opportunities are still there. So what is the future for God's people? Part two. The future is that there will be judgment. The future is that we are full of iniquity. That we are sinners. But that if we turn to God and we follow him and we do what he wants us to do, if we receive his grace in the way that he is offering it to us, if we want to do what he wants us to do, all will be well. It is never too late to turn to the Lord. And that's what these chapters are about. Throughout the book of Isaiah, there has been discussion about the failure of mankind to know the Lord. And in the end, it is a book that talks about God sending His Son because we have failed. There is no other option because you certainly can't do it. I can't do it. Only His Son can do it because only His Son understands the depth of that grace that He offers to us. We are the work of your hand, it says. Are you the work of God's hand? I know next week Carrie is going to continue on with part three of this uh, to show you where it is and, and where we're at. But it's also a situation that we need to go home and read these chapters again. It's okay to read them and see the story that I've put before you, but also see God's part in this. When you sinned, Do you think God shed a tear? Did he feel pity for you? Did he feel anger towards you? Was he frustrated with you? Was there angst in the things that you were doing towards him? Did he feel you had failed him? Or were you a blessing to him? These are all questions that we have to ask ourselves. Because I can't do it for you. You can't do it for me. It is a personal walk with our Lord and Savior. And that's what this book is about. And that's what these chapters are about. To remind us that leaders can't do it for us. That priests can't do it for us. That our family can't do it for us that we individually have to do it for ourselves.
give that consideration as you go from this building today. Lord, we are reminded that your word says that heaven rejoices when a lost soul returns to the fold. Lord, I pray that for each of us here, a celebration has taken place. And if it is not, Lord, that that individual would simply fall on their knees and surrender to you, repent and acknowledge that they are sinners and that they need you, Lord, that they want you, that they want you to be their Savior, their Lord, and to follow you, to profess that trust and obedience. Lord, it's hard sometimes to sit back and realize, Lord, that all that we have is in the control of someone else. But Lord, who else would want us? We are hurt people, Lord. We are full of sin, full of that evil, Lord, that lurks within each and every one of us. And yet you love us. You love us to the point of sending your son to earth to correct these things, Lord. We've seen a little bit of a glimpse of that through Isaiah. And we know, Lord, we've seen it all when we think of his time on the cross and his resurrection. Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, each and every day to honor and glorify you, to put you first in all that we do. And to realize, Lord, that the things that we chase some days, Lord, are things of this world and not of your world. Help us to divide those things up, Lord, and seek out only you. Lord, we simply thank you for your love towards us, for the grace that you continue to heap upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.